0: When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their children or from others? When Peter said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take it and give it to them for you and me. The word of God for the people of God. And I also just want to say, in the midst of, I appreciate Kobe and Phil and Tim and Liz just reminding us that we are in a broken world. We live in a broken world, in a beautiful world that is broken, and those two things are together at the same time. We serve a God who uh, tells us over and over again that love is stronger than evil, that love wins, that goodness is stronger than evil. It's hard to believe that in the midst of um, systems uh, of terror. And um, so uh, I think one of the most difficult things about this weekend, and seems like every other weekend in the past you know, several dozen years, is that this is not something that's a one-off thing. And so our response and how we are formed as people of Jesus, people of God, is much more complicated than just saying, if we pray, then you know, it will be over, or if we're able to do that. You know, so this is, this, is, um, this is the beautiful and broken world we live in and minister in and have fear in and have hope in and all of those things. And So um, we ask the Lord why. We ask the Lord to come. We ask the Lord to have mercy. We ask the Lord to give us the power to change things. We ask the Lord for so many things. And I think the Lord is asking us why, how long, and will you do the things that I have told you to do? So I think there's this conversation between us and God. So as we ask questions, God is also asking us questions. So let us pray. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Help us to hear and to act and to minister and to live in your name, in the name of the one who was killed and who rose from the dead breathing forgiveness. Help us to follow in some impossible way to follow him. In Christ's name, amen. So every year, when I was a kid, um, we're in the middle of this sermon series called "What's in Jesus's Wallet." So we don't we don't do this every every uh, every week to so, say you know so there's a money theme going on. So I just want to acknowledge that. It may be an uncomfortable thing for you. It is it is for all of us I think, because money is a fraught kind of the third rail of our existence. Um, you touch it, it's got a lot of power. It can kill you. It can also, if you if you funnel it well, it can do amazing things. Right. So. Just to sort of acknowledge how difficult it is to talk about these things. But I was a kid. We all we all learned about money from primarily from our family systems. That's where we first learned about it, right? Um, When I was a kid, my blue-collar families would save and save and save. Family would save and save and save in order to scrape enough money together every year to take a vacation in June. Um, Every year, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my parents, and me and my sister would load up our cars in in Mississippi and drive ten hours south to. Panama City Beach, Florida. Does anyone here know PCB? A couple <laughs> of you, all right. It's a glorious place. So in the winter, just after the Christmas tree came down pretty much, my dad, a half year before the vacation every year, my dad would begin to make a pile of stuff that he didn't want to forget to take to the beach in June. All right, he would make this pile where the Christmas tree had been in the living room. A pile, a growing pile from February to Jan- to June of, you know, swim goggles and Panama Jack hats and sunscreen, all these things, right, this growing monument to remind us of how significant this trip was for our family. Um, A lot of our family life revolved around planning that trip and going on that trip, and then we got back from that trip reflecting on how awesome that trip had been. Um, I came to see only as an adult how much undealt with conflict my parents had, uh, my now divorced parents had, and I think there was this idea for them that if we could make it to June every year, if we could make it to the panhandle of Florida, then everything would be okay. So we did that for like 10 years. And then my parents got a divorce. Um, My, uh, it took a few more years after that for i on vacation. But because I had learned that this week of vacation was meant for us to have fun, I too would save my money like my parents had. Like my parents were like, we're saving money for vacation, we're saving money for vacation. So I would save my money too, I would save my, birthday money. I would save my little allowance. I would save the money that my next door neighbor gave me to rake the leaves in her, her yard in the fall. I would save it all up, right? And so I would have like an envelope. It was always an envelope of cash to spend however I wanted to in Florida. I remember one year when I was nine or ten, I had saved up like $37, which was in 1984 big money, okay? <laughs> I had that burning in my pocket on the, on the drive down through Alabama to Florida. I was thinking about. What am I going to do with the thirty-seven dollars that I'm like flush with, right? <laughs> and what did I spend this money on at the beach? Most of the time, you might ask. Did I spend it on, you know, a, a perennial airbrush T-shirt and matching cap? Did I did I did I spend it on an assorted, you know, collection of uh, seashells that were rare? Did I did I spend it on a jet ski through the waves? No, no, no. Most every year, most of my money each year was blown cross the road from the motel at the arcade, on Um, Skee-Ball. Skee-Ball is a particularly addictive game, because in addition to it being fun in and of itself, it also promises a reward, right? Those redeemable tickets that spit out. You could play for a whole hour, you could blow through $5, and even though you lost five bucks of tokens, even if you didn't score particularly well, there would still be a tiny payoff, right? You could trade in those 25 tickets for a plastic spider ring or a seashell pencil sharpener, right? Um, The year that I had 37 bucks in my pocket, I decided I wasn't gonna play for the small stuff. I was gonna amass all week long all of my tickets for the big reward. And so it only took me three days to burn through my $37, but in three days of compulsive, Nearly 24-7 skillful ski-balling, I amassed enough tickets to trade in for a top-shelf prize. I remember walking up to the glass counter, pointing to the top shelf, and saying, that's what I'd like. And that top-shelf prize was a 12-inch stuffed animal dolphin. (laughs) The rest of the week felt like a letdown. After the adrenaline rush of the compulsive ski-balling had worn off, I mean, I'm on vacation, I'm at a sandy white beach, and the blue, blue ocean, and the sunrise and the sunset, and I'm sitting under the umbrella holding a ridiculous (laughs) stuffed dolphin and wondering what happened. (laughs) That is a kid's story, but I'm not sure that things change all that much as we get older. Of course, it's not Skee-Ball that's driving us anymore, but we find more sophisticated things in our life uh, to assign our worth to. In your life, what is the thing that you're chasing? What is the thing that you're attached to? What is the thing that drives you? And for all of us, it's different. And some of those things are not bad things, right? Raw denim is a good thing, okay? I'm for it. Uh, it's, not, it's We're not evaluating, I don't want to evaluate the goodness or badness of things, but it's what are you attached to? And what you are attached to may be very different from what I'm attached to. So, like, for example, I think it's really important for us to sort of be honest with ourselves. What is it that catches us out, that catches us out? For me, like, I don't like fashion. I only buy in thrift stores, right? So I like fashion, but I'm not going to spend money on fashion. So that's not a thing for me. I don't give a damn about cars. I find dining in. But I'll tell you what. What catches me as I walk down every street in the city, I'm looking at brownstones. I'm looking at one bedrooms. I'm looking at bungalows. I'm looking at property. I'm like... I'm like peeping in people's windows and noticing how well-appointed things are. And for whatever reason, that is the thing that catches me, right? I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's just the thing that gets me. So it's not, you know, I'll be judgmental about people who like cars, but it's easy for me to be judgmental because I don't give a damn about cars, right? So what is it that catches you out? What stokes all of your comparison games? What is it? What is the thing that you're chasing? I think one of the major reasons Jesus talks about money, we only talk about it like four weeks a year. Jesus talks about it in two-thirds of his sermons. So I think one of the reasons he talks about money in the gospel more than anything else, you know, uh, Christian candidates for president take notice, okay? Uh, He talks about it all the time. It's because... He knows I think how absolutely common it is for human beings to get attached to stuff and then to be run by our financial pursuit of that stuff. And so all throughout the gospel, all throughout the gospel, Jesus is diagnosing our condition. He's saying basically that how you use your money, whether you have a little bit of money or a lot of money, a lot of money, how you use it reveals almost everything about you. This is what he's saying throughout the gospel. He says your money it's neither good nor bad. It just shows you a ton about who you are. Rich Pack, who is the um, partner of one of our pastors in Hyde Park, Emily Ginley, he was preaching and he wrote, he said this. He says that your bank estate, your bank statement reveals even more about you than your internet search engine does. Jesus knows that. He knows that. And so throughout the gospel, he's diagnosing us. He is. He knows that, as one mystic has said, most people would rather save their money than save their lives. And so he's just naming that. And he talks about it, sometimes he talks about it in these extended stories. We call them parables. Remember last week I preached on the parable of the talents? One, two, or five, what do they do with the money? A couple weeks ago I preached on the parable of the vineyard workers, and which vineyard got paid how much, which worker got paid how much when. These are all stories about many things, but they're, they're they trade in money. Or Jesus will sometimes not tell stories. He'll just, like, sort of drop these bombs that break open everything, these little pithy statements that sort of just explode your bank account. Like this one. You know it. It'll be easier for a rich person to go through the eye of the needle, and the eye of the needle, than it will be for them to inherit the kingdom of God. You hear that, and they're like, ouch! And I know lots of us here are thinking that, you know, we're not really rich people, but of course, right, given... The whole world context, all of us are gonna have a hard time, according to Jesus, uh, if we're not more aware of what's going on. I don't think that means I just gonna say sometimes people hear Jesus talking about inherit the kingdom of God as like you're gonna to go to hell. Let's not, we're not playing like where you go after you die, games. We're talking about what is the quality of your life right now. It will be hard for you, Jesus is saying, if you are rich, to inherit. To partake in, to see, to experience the kingdom of God that is offered right now—it'll be hard for you. It'll be hard for me. It is hard for me. So Jesus wants to like crack through all of the veneer of all of our worth games, right? He wants to sort of break into that, so we so we can just see what what's going on at the very at the very first level, just to see what's going on. Jesus wants to give us the chance that, to to sort of see that now, so that we don't end up in 30, or 40, or 60 years on our deathbeds, holding whatever version of our stupid stuffed dolphin is, and wondering, like, what happened (laughs) in this life, this one life that I had? Like, Jesus is like, don't let that happen. I mean, grace will abound, I believe, if that happens, and God is more gracious into the afterlife, into the world, and the life after death that we can imagine. But I think Jesus is like, dude, live now, right? So, Fred Craddock tells the story uh, of going to visit his niece who had just adopted one of those racing greyhounds who chases the mechanical rabbits around the track. And he went to see his niece, and he met this greyhound, and so he started up a conversation with the greyhound. He had this little conversation with the greyhound, and he said to the dog who's lying there on the couch, So, dog, are you still running? And the dog's like no i'm not running anymore <clears throat> well what was the matter did you did you get too old to race no i still had some race in me well what then why did you why did you stop running did you not win the races greyhounds like no i won over a million dollars for my owner well what was it was it bad treatment oh no they treated me royally when i was running did you get crippled Mm-mm. but why why did you stop running The dog answered I quit. You quit? why you quit? I quit. The dog's like, I just quit. Because after all the running and running and running, I found out the rabbit I was chasing was not even real. A lot of times in the, in the gospel, Jesus isn't prescriptive about money. He just diagnoses us. He just tells stories like that. So we're like, oh, you've been chasing something actually not even real. A lot of times in the gospel, he's just diagnosing us so that we can see the truth of our condition, which is always painful, but then the pain is the potential chance to begin to accept the freedom of this thing that Jesus is trying to offer us, right? So a lot of times he's just diagnosing. Consider this. What do you think? You know, we're like, oh. But then sometimes Jesus is prescriptive, okay? I think like the majority of times Jesus is not prescriptive. I think the majority of times Jesus is diagnostic. But sometimes Jesus tells us actually, I think, Jesus actually tells, wants to tell us how to live. Sometimes I think Jesus actually wants to tell us what we should do. Um, and when it comes to money, I think it's not so much that Jesus tells us how to make a living, because Jesus doesn't. But Jesus does seem to want to, over and over again, in a very prescriptive way, tell us what to do with that living once we make it. Jesus is really clear about that, um, sometimes. And so he says one of his little prescriptions is this. He says that if we want to begin to sort out our fraught relationship with money, here's what we might try. Try giving some of your stuff away. Try giving some of your money away. If you want happiness, try giving some of your money away. Which seems like to me counterintuitive. I feel like every time I preach on the gospel, I'm saying things like, every time I think I look back in my past two sermons on Jesus' parables on money. Counterintuitive is a word that I've used in every sermon. Really? To be more fully alive, I should give some of myself away. To be happy, I should let go of some of my stuff, some of my stuff. And Jesus is like, yes, welcome to Jesus. I think it's actually Jesus 201. Uh, I think the first part is like, I love you, I have grace for you, you're wonderful, I, you're the apple of my eye, and he's like, and you have to give some of your sh- sh- stuff away. <laughs> right? uh, it's Jesus 201, right? So if you're, if you're here 101, that's okay, that's cool, but Jesus is like, you're ready for stage two, alright? And we're like, what? In order to keep it, I have to give it away? And Jesus is like, yes, that's how it works. A lot of his prescriptions are variations on that faith. If you want to keep it, you give it away. So today's weird story, uh, it was a little fragment, has a lot of stuff going on. Just kind of just say weird stuff. Did you you hear it? Maybe you were not paying attention. A coin in the fish's mouth to pay the temple tax. Just want to say, when you read scholarship on this, which I was doing this week, because this this text, no one ever preaches on it, and it turns out there's not much scholarship on this text about the temple tax and going to fish for a coin, a fish for fish that comes up with with your your payment for the tax. Uh, Scholars are like this on this. We have no idea. Uh, We don't know what this is about. Uh, So I just, I want to say this. I love that there's stuff in the Bible that is really weird and like defies explanation. I just love that. Uh, I love that because I don't know about your life, but my life has a lot of stuff in it that's weird and defies explanation. So I love that. But um, in the midst of all that, just please don't miss the very, very, very basic, va- very plain text reading of this, which Jesus sort of says that Jesus himself pays the temple tax. Jesus himself gives money to the temple every year and says that his disciples should too, right? Now, for that year at least, they get to find that money, that skee-ball coin, by going to the Lake Michigan and, and the fish gives it to him. But presumably this is something that Jesus does. This is part of his tradition. Uh, to pay, if they want to, uh, if they want to uh, follow his his way, they should give some money to the temple. All right, and that's not something you hear a lot in church in sermon, but that seems to be this is where I'm. This is where I am with this text this week. So the temple is an extremely important place for those of you. Just a little backstory: the temple is a building, but it's more than a building. The temple is the way. That Jewish life in the ancient times talked about where humanity and divinity met. The Israelites had come from slavery uh, through the wilderness, carrying the tabernacle of God's presence. They're sort of a move-the movable feast of God's presence with them, and they get to the promised land, they get to Israel, to Jerusalem, they build this temple, it's torn down, they build it back up again, this place where God uh, resides, where God lives. And so this is a very, very important place. This is uh, the place where God lives. This is where God meets the people, and so Jewish life in the first century and many centuries before revolves around this temple, right? Not just religious life, but political life, economic life. You all know this, that like there was not everything cohere, right? So it wasn't like we do theology, we do economics, we do politics, right? It's all It was all sort of flowing together back then, and so if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you would make seasonal, regular pilgrimages to the temple because it's just part and parcel of doing life as a Jew, as a faithful Jew. Jesus hangs out at the temple or around the temple a lot. He does a lot of his teaching at or around the temple. Remember that story? He's sitting with his disciples, and the little old woman walks up to the temple offering bucket and puts in her two coins, and Jesus is like, hey, disciples, look at her. You can learn something from her. You can learn something about God from her. Jesus is doing that all the time, sort of hanging out at the temple and watching people and then teaching about what's going on. Sometimes he's like, watch what she does. That's really interesting. You can learn about God from her. Sometimes he's like, watch what they do. You can learn about what is not God from them, right? So he's in this this way of pedagogy. Some Christians have tried to divorce Jesus from the temple. They have said that Jesus was all about sort of like eradicating the temple, that Jesus was anti temple, that uh, Jesus was anti institutional, that Jesus was trying to sort of break, totally break down and let go of the temple process. I want to say, in my opinion, that's not a good reading of what Jesus is trying to do. Um, I think in lots of times it's sort of a lazy reading that we say, like, oh, Uh, Jesus wasn't interested in the temple. I think it's sort of lazy. At at best, it's lazy. At worst, I think it can be anti-Semitic and trying to sort of divorce Jesus from uh, being a Jew to sort of de-Jewish Jesus or to whitewash Jesus. Jesus was critical of the temple, absolutely. He was critical of the temple, but he was critical of the temple because he was part and parcel of the temple system, right? He cared deeply about the temple system. He believed that people met God there, and wanted to make sure that uh, the practices of the temple, the, the uh, systems of the temple facilitated people encountering God in that place. All right? And so he would call things out when they didn't. But Jesus was not trying to sort of like, to my mind, in my opinion, sort of say, oh, the temple no longer important. All right? um, now, he did say some weird things about the temple. Uh, for example, he did say when he was doing some teaching, do you see that temple? I will tear it down and build it back up in three days. Right? Remember that statement? That got him in a lot of trouble. Okay. Um, he was not actually, in that moment, threatening property destruction and civil disobedience at that moment. Now, he did do some property destruction and civil disobedience at the temple. Just so you know, for those of you who have mixed feelings about that, Jesus went in there and turned some tables over. So, like, he wasn't anti, like, making a statement uh, at all. But he wasn't trying to, like, Get rid of the temple. He was saying, I think, um, if you want to sort of see what the, temple, what the temple is for, what the temple's trajectory is, where the temple has always been pointing to, you can look at me and my life and my death and my resurrection and my coming back from the dead three days, and in three days I will build the temple back. You can look at me and you can see what the temple was always pointing to, which is the truth, the powerful truth, that God always desires to be with the people, that God always desires to be embodied, that God always desires to be enfleshed. In the great rituals of first century Judaism, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and shroud himself in this mantle and come out dressed as Yahweh. This is the nature of temple, first century temple practice, to bring God uh, into the creation, right? And Jesus is saying, look, this is what we've been doing for a long time, and I'm here to show you the fullness of that, uh, which is in me, in my life, in this particular human being, in this particular event, you can see what the temple has always been pointing to, which is that God likes to be with people. God wants to be in flesh and body. which is a staggering statement uh, that we could see in Christ. We could see God coming close to us. The early Christians... As they walked in the light of this Jesus event, as they began to sort of feel uh, what it, their bodies themselves in the way of Jesus after he was dead and raised and ascended, they began to say even more staggering things about themselves. Paul told them that they themselves were temples of the Holy Spirit. They began to talk about themselves as the body of Christ. Right? So these, this is the ongoing experience of the risen Christ in them. It wasn't that the, temple, the physical temple was unimportant. It wasn't that the physical body of Jesus was unimportant. It was that the ongoing, the telos, the trajectory where this thing was going, pointed to the truth of what the temple had been trying to say in them. They were not, they were not only going to the temple anymore. They were not just looking at the body of Jesus. They were temples of the Holy Spirit. They were the body of Christ. They were, and this is a staggering statement, they were the place where God lived in the world. Now that is an audacious and staggering statement, right? You are the church. We are the church. We are the place that God lives in this world. To sort of see the church, the body of Christ, as the domain of God, where God lives, all right? We're speaking as Christians here. We're speaking, that's our kind of frame of reference. Like this, this is the place... God is not just in a building someplace. The so buildings are great, but God is fully present with us in our in our community as human beings. All right. Now, it's sometimes hard for churches to remember that because a lot of churches spend a lot of their time and money on institutional maintenance and keeping the building up. Right. But we know at Urban Village because we don't have any buildings that it's maybe easier for us to remember that who church is, what church is, is not the Chauvin Theater, is not the building, but is actually us. It's us. And even though we don't own buildings, it is easy for us to forget that, that we are the body of Christ. And so I just want to remind you and myself that, as I say all the time, you are the church, you are the body of Christ, you are temples of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean in terms of mission and ministry in this world? It means that there are folks, as I say all the time, in this world who will not be loved if not by you. There are folks in this world that will not be held or heard or healed if not by you. You are the body of Christ. You are temples of the Holy Spirit. There are children in this world who will not be taught if not by you. There are systems in this world that will not be changed, if not by you. Amen? There are people in this world, actually you are people in this world, who will not be held or healed or heard, if not by others of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just one way, it's also received. All right? So, when I ask you today to think about your temple tax. I'm inviting you to think about giving some of your uh, money as the temple tax. And um, it's easy for me to ask that because I'm telling you that we don't have to spend money on bricks and mortar. That all of the money that I invite you to give, that I'm invited to give, goes into the pure, non-building presence of God in the human community called Urban Village Church. So I want to invite you to think about your temple tax. I want to invite you to think about um, putting some money that you have been putting into the ball machine or whatever machine runs your life, whatever machine runs your life, to putting some of that into the mission of Urban Village Church. That will help you if you believe Jesus. Just giving something away will help you start to experience the freedom of the gospel. Just the sheer crazy thing of letting go of some of your stuff, just that will begin to free you up. Um, I also invite you to give to this church because you are contending with a staggering and audacious claim and feeling, perhaps, a staggering and audacious claim um, that you are are the church, that you are the body of Christ, that you're investing in a sense in yourself and what God is doing for you. Um, We are trying to be really transparent about Urban Village and our finances, so pull this out real quick. This is a little breakdown. We believe in total transparency. So it's a little breakdown of where our, our giving is in the church. And so I invite you, if this is your church home and you uh, this is where you call church. You come here, you you enjoy ministry here, you, you love this church, to think about giving a gift. We have about 240 active households at Urban Village Wicker Park. You can see the breakdown here. So just take a second and sort of find where you are. If you are a guest today or is checking us out, this you can just sort of look at this for information's sake, but there's no expectation that you would give. But for those of you, this is your church home, just find where you are. So for example, 36 households give between one and $4.99 a week, okay? That's basically the price of a, of a good coffee drink at Intelligentsia. Or if you're a Duncan's girl, two coffee drinks at Duncan, all right? So if that's where you are, I'm inviting you to think about giving one or two steps up. So find out where you are. So maybe you can move from one to $4.99 a week to ten to 19.99 a week. If one person did that today, we would pay for our children's curriculum for an entire season. If one person did that, or maybe you're at you're at the 30 to $99, $99, 49.99, 49.99 range a week, which is I was thinking the cost of a movie and maybe depending on your drinking, one or two drinks at a bar. All right, seriously. That's what you spend on a night out with your friends that's a cheap night out with your friends amen all right so maybe that's where you are so i want to invite you could you think about moving up to 50 to 99 a week which would cover if one person did that would cover the rent for chopin theater for an entire month or if two people did it it would cover the bus to springfield to take folks down to advocate for a fair budget in illinois every year which we do once or twice If three people did it, it would allow us to send five people to leadership discipleship training events across the U.S. to train up lay leaders to be disciples. So think about where you are. Uh, Maybe you can do a little more than what you're doing already. If you've already made a pledge and you've been convicted by Liz and Tim, you can can increase that by a step. If you have not made a pledge yet, I invite you to really think, think deeply about this, just to let you know that I would never ask you to do something I'm not doing, Uh, Jonathan and I give 11% of our income to Urban Village and another couple percent to charity. I say that not to boast, but I just want you to know I would never ask you to do something that I'm not doing. We're moving to England, so uh, we're going to commit to giving the same percentage until we find a new church in England. So I'm saying at least two months, but it it may maybe for the whole year. But that's our commitment. Um, Other folks are getting very excited in addition to people here about the mission and vision of Urban Village. And I just want to close the sermon with these three little quick announcements. One is, um, a, a woman in this church, in this site started the Bridge Project, which is a place, uh, a ministry of meeting homeless sisters and brothers where they are on the streets with excellent food and clothes and human kindness. That program has grown. And Valerie Vanzant wrote a grant this year. She's one of the leaders for that. And has uh, we have received a $4,500 grant from an outside foundation to provide for the infrastructure of the Bridge projects, right? That's from someone who's not part of this church, who says, what y'all are doing is really cool. Let me tell you another quick story. Someone came to Urban Village once this year, and just was so like, oh my God, this is a place where I can love Jesus and be gay? Oh my God, I love this. Couldn't find a gospel-inclusive church in his town back west, so he's been here once, but listens to sermons and looks at the blog and looks at the website, and he made a pledge to our church this year, even though he's been one time, right? People are getting excited about what's happening. The last thing I can just announce, which I'm so excited about, you know that I love deeply helping create a space for young leaders to raise up, clergy leaders, lay leaders to start new things. I believe in that deeply Urban Village has. We just found out on Friday we have received a $30,000 grant to continue building our ministry in the next year to fund young adults who want to come. So... So people are around the world going, oh my gosh, Urban Village is doing really cool stuff. This is the kind of place that you serve. This is the church, the bricks and mortar. These are the human beings in which God lives. So will you give, friends, I want want you to think about it deeply. Um, We're going to receive an offering right now. The buckets are going to pass. You can fill it out now, put money in there. You can put those tear-offs in there. So we're going to receive that offering, and then Rich is going to lead us in communion. Amen.